It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. One of today's major concerns is the deterioration of bridges. Most recently, a pedestrian bridge under construction on the campus of Florida International University collapsed, killing six people. Joining us today to discuss bridge design and other infrastructure concerns is Neil Hawkins. Professor Hawkins holds a PhD in civil engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and is Professor Emeritus of Civil Engineering at UIUC, serving as department head on two occasions. He's had similar appointments at the Universities of Sydney and Washington. He is an expert in reinforced and pre-stressed concrete and pre-stressed concrete structures subject to static and dynamic loadings. He's the past director of the American Concrete Institute, the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute, and the Post-Tensioning Institute, and he's also uh, a titan of precast pre-stressed concrete institute. Uh, Professor Hawkins, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, first off, uh, I, I kind of want to touch on uh, Florida International uh, University Bridge. Uh, that was it's been a few months or so ago. Uh, what uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, and and uh, what you your uh, thought is on on why that collapsed? Ah, uh, yes, the Florida International University Bridge was being built by a uh, new method of uh, building bridges, which we call accelerated bridge construction. In actual fact, there is a center for accelerated bridge construction at Florida International University. And this bridge was intended to be a showcase for that uh, new center and the knowledge it is producing. Uh, in the case of this bridge, it is a type of bridge that is not used in the United States that has been used in Europe. And therefore, there are certain features of this bridge that make it fairly unique in its properties, in the fact that uh, it has very little redundancy. Now, I can set out to try and explain what redundancy is, but uh, generally, if you have something in which you want to cross over a stream or something, and you put down one plank, if the plank is poor, uh, then when you step on it, it might collapse. But if you have two planks crossing the stream and you put your foot on one and it's poor, you can perhaps transfer over to the other one and still manage to get across the stream. In the case of the Florida International University Bridge, there was just the equivalent of one plank, which was the upper cord of the truss type bridge that they were trying to build. And uh, that appears to have somehow or other uh, not functioned in the way that it was intended. Okay. So just, you know, in general, kind of give us an, an idea. I know this has uh, kind of been in the news uh, lately um, and, and has been for, for a number of years, just the, uh, the state of our, our infrastructure in terms of our bridges. Uh, can you talk in general about, uh, you know, how big of a crisis this is? I think the crisis uh, condition varies around the country, but our, uh, our use of bridges, we seem to assume that they will go on forever. 
And uh, when you originally designed such bridges, they were only designed for maybe at the best a 50-year service life. Um, you know, the human body is designed for watch service life. Uh, we talk about, uh, you know, expected life. And uh, that's what we really have in bridges, expected life. And we had uh, back in the uh, 1950s and 19 and early 1960s, a tremendous expansion of our bridge systems. In Illinois, we went from a lot of uh, dirt roads to uh, chip-sealed roads. We built interstates. We crossed a lot of things and improved the infrastructure. But most of that work now is coming to its age limit. And uh, it's not reasonable to expect that it will continue to be able to function in the way it has been functioning for people in the past. So we need to have an investment in updating those bridges, and it needs to be done in a systematic manner. Uh, the actual trans uh, departments of transportation across the country all have plans for doing this, and they put their bridges into priorities, but the amount of money going into the system to do the replacement is not in any way out, uh, equal to the rate at which the replacement needs to take place. It's just that we created so many bridges and other infrastructure back there in the late 50s and 60s. So is it a, it's a matter that the bridges maybe weren't uh, built uh, to last? They're just This is just their natural life and they were all built at the same time? You know, the demands we place on bridges change. Uh, we have consistently gone to heavier and bigger trucks, for example. Uh, in Illinois, there has been uh, considerable improvements in the application of de-icing salts and other methods to keep the roadways clear so people can travel uh, faster. The increased truck loads uh, were not things for which the bridges were originally designed. So the continual uh, forces that they feel from these trucks and so on uh, of causing uh, deterioration under repeated loading of the bridge. That is then coupled with the, the icing salts and other methods to keep the bridge clear that is done. And those salts slowly penetrate into the concrete and then attack the reinforcing bar, uh, letting the reinforcing bar to actually corrode. And that's where we also had a problem. So we know we have this service life length to our bridges, and we know that they need to be replaced in many situations. Okay. Talk about how bridge construction has changed since the time you're talking about in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, and, and how things have improved in terms of bridges that are being built today versus back then. Uh, well, you know, the public's expectation of what should be done has risen dramatically. In the 50s and 60s, uh, we may do with a lot more things. Uh, and we may do as far as our bridge construction was concerned. Uh, the bridges were utilitarian and in many cases not very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, now, the public quite often, especially in uh, city environments demands aesthetically pleasing bridges. They demand approaches to the bridges that look nice. They demand lighting on the bridges that is something completely different. 
So, you know, if you took a bridge that you had in the 1950s as a cost of construction, and then you talk about, well, replacing that bridge, as somebody says, uh, sometimes it lights up with all the other things that people want done around it. And you have to understand that many bridges also carry the utilities across them. They carry the utilities for fiber optics, they carry sewer, they carry gas. Uh, and in those particular cases, all those services have to be interrupted. And people will complain about them. So you have to do a whole lot of other things that were not there when you originally built that bridge. So that's part of what goes on. I can give you an illustration of, uh, I was once asked in the 1970s when I moved into Washington state to, and I was working on the planning commission for a small city, which is called the city of Redmond, which uh, actually happens to be now Microsoft's headquarters. And in uh, the year I was there, the city population was about 5,000. Now, for example, it's about 60,000. And they wanted to cross this, what I would classify as a small stream or river, maybe 100 feet across at the maximum. And they asked me, well, how much is it going to cost to cross this, cross this bridge? So I went to the uh, charts and tables and, and did my calculations and came up with a figure. And then I thought, well, I better not tell them that figure. I should go ahead and give them a figure which is allowing for all the overhead and everything else. So I multiplied by a factor of two and a half, which is the common sort of factor which comes into here, uh -huh. and came up with a number, and uh, which actually happened to be around $300,000. When the bridge was constructed, the, it cost one and a half million. And uh, the city father said to me, how could you be so wrong? And I said, well, I wasn't so wrong, but you didn't tell me you were going, going to convert it into the Hanging Gardens of Babylon <laughs> because the approaches had all sorts of landscaping around it, all sorts of lights. They had extra balustrades on the side to make it a visible entrance to the city. So we've got to accept the fact that people want a lot more and expect it. Our cars back in the 50s and the 60s were very utilitarian compared with the modern car that people want to drive with all sorts of electronic control devices. So I, I want to take you back to, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago when you were working with uh, the Illinois Department of Transportation. Just talk about some of the work that you did back then and uh, how uh, the studies that you did uh, on some of the bridges that they were uh, building over some of the secondary roads and some of the interstates, uh, particularly in southern Illinois? Uh, let me first talk about uh, a situation that occurred in Illinois with side-by-side uh, -side box girder bridges. Uh, these were very common on the secondary roads in the state. They were, uh, and still are, I'm quite sure, uh, they were also common on some of the uh, state highways, and in actual fact, there were in a few interstates. Uh, to give you one example, uh, one of the side-by-side box girder bridges was Mannheim Road over the entrance to Chicago O'Hare's airport. Uh, now, uh, in, when you come down in Illinois, there's an interstate that goes over towards uh, 
uh, Indianapolis, and I-57 comes the car down. And uh, some people uh, are using I-80, which is east-west, find that they can drop down on 57 and then go over secondary roads in Illinois and pick up the interstates in Indiana. And a number of trucks started to do this, causing uh, quite heavy loadings on some of the uh, secondary roads in Illinois. Now, they were still intended to be a state highways, but at one stage we got a call uh, that came in that uh, the state patrol officer had been driving across the bridge and looked and said, there's something strange with that guardrail, and then went to the bridge and looked at the bridge and saw that the outside girder of the bridge had collapsed into the stream. Uh, well, I think that's about the stage at which you say, hey, we have a problem here. Right. So uh, <laughs> the Illinois DOT asked me to try and identify what was going on. And uh, we identified what was going on. And a lot of the problem was associated with the uh, the icing salts that had been being placed on the secondary roads in Illinois or on all the roads in Illinois as a result of wanting to keep the roads clear. These salts uh, then go down the cracks and down the outside of the bridge, and they actually evaporate from the bottom of the bridge. Now, the pre-stressing steel for the bridge is in the bottom of the bridge. It's in the bottom of the box girders. So that salt penetrates in and starts to attack the pre-stressing strand. And uh, we started to find a number of these bridges, particularly on the outside girders, in which up to 50% of the strands in the outside girder have been lost. That means that there'd have been at least a 50% reduction in the capacity of our outside girder. And that 50% reduction in the capacity is about the safety factor that we generally build into the bridge at the best. Uh, does that explain anything? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and I know you mentioned, uh, you know, we uh, maybe in Illinois don't often think about it, but uh, certainly earthquakes are a, a possibility. Talk about uh, the work that you did uh, to retrofit uh, some of the bridges, interstates for, uh, for seismic activity. Yeah, uh, the Illinois is vulnerable to earthquakes in the southern part of the state. It's not really quite clear uh, what the characteristics of those earthquakes are going to be. But we do know that there's a major fault down there called the New Madrid Fault, which uh, moves on about a 500-year uh, cycle. And when it does, it causes very large um, movements. And they come up uh, the state, and they'll affect things up to St. Louis, St. Charles, and up to Alton and above. And uh, so that the interstates that go through that part of the country, well, the Illinois DOT has worked hard on making them more resilient. And the vulnerable part of many of these bridges has been the columns of the bridge. Now, the columns on the bridge uh, are going to be where you try to get some uh, energy dissipation for the uh, forces 
uh, exerted by the earthquake. In other words, the columns have to be able to rock backwards and forwards during the earthquake and the connections of the column to the foundation and uh, must not uh, fail. And the, the bridge girder itself must not drop off the top of the column or the pier head over the column. And the, the easiest way of dealing with this is what we talk about as column wrapping. And uh, you, what you do is you go in there and you strengthen that con connection by wrapping it around with, uh, we could use carbon fiber, we've used pre-stressing strand, we've used glass fiber. We uh, have done a number of applications of that type and we looked at different ways of more cost-effective ways of doing this, less vulnerable ways of doing this, because we also found that if we completely jacketed many of these columns, then we could get deterioration due to the salts that wash down the columns. So we needed to get some way in which we could get the columns, the actual concrete in the columns to be both strengthened, but between the bits we strengthen to be able to breathe, in other words, only wrap it to a certain extent. So that's what's been done in many of those columns throughout southern Illinois, and they've been done on a priority basis. This is sort of laugh. I think I'm the only uh, structural engineer who's had, somebody has ever written a poem about, because there's a poem about the work in southern Illinois, which is a real laugh if you ever read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, obviously, uh, you mentioned two of the concerns. One is, is heavier loads, and certainly the vehicles, and particularly uh, the trucks uh, that are on our, uh, on our roadways have increased, and certainly the volume has increased. And then you mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the ice, uh, problem where people have put uh, we put salt on to try to, to solve that are there are there solutions uh, would you recommend using a different substance for instance that uh, might not uh, deteriorate the concrete as much uh, people are working on that uh, but you know cost is a major concern and they now use tanker trucks which spread a uh, de-icing material which is very easy to do you just like going along spraying uh, in your soil for uh, your crops or something uh, well they just do that down the road and you can keep the road open fairly easily uh, what we have to do is to make concrete which are more chlor resistant to chloride penetration that's what we can do. We also have to make concretes which have less surface cracks to what they're doing. And all this throws up the cost of doing it. But the, the public really expects to be able to drive in the winter in the normal way that they drive in the summer. And, you know, it, that wasn't the case back in the 50s and 60s. People were very cautious, and we actually had brick roads, which you slid all over. And uh, so you need, you need to realize that, yes, we can do something better. And at, at Illinois, they've actually tried on the campus, you know, to spread these de-icing salts to uh, help people. But when they uh, came into the buildings initially, people found they were slipping all over the vinyl. Because yeah. they have this on their shoes. So you have to also think about 
what happens if you try to use some of these different ones when people go off the road into other uh, venues. So yeah, but uh, you know, the cost of maintaining the roads to be traffic uh, sensitive, and the sensitive is not the right word, but easy to be used by traffic uh, during the winter time really puts a lot of stress on the roads that we didn't think about when we were originally designing many of these bridges. So the, the loading and the way in which we maintain the roads has changed so much that we need to revitalize our bridges to be consistent with those loadings, the amount of uh, traffic, and with the way in which we do the maintenance of the bridges. So how do we do that? <laughs> you ask me a good question, don't you? Who's going to pay is actually the question. Right. And, uh, and uh, I don't know how that's best done. Uh, but I think we, well, we need to be addressing it in some systematic way as a, a whole nation. So talk about testing, because uh, I'm sure there are much more sophisticated ways to test the resiliency of bridges. Uh, you know, what? Talk about standard procedure. How, how many how many bridges are test tested? You know, are there ways to to monitor these things wirelessly? Uh, how is the the testing? Uh, technology advanced uh, over recent years? Yeah, there's been a lot of advancements in the uh, monitoring technologies. There are light emitting di diodes that you can actually string up there and you can just uh, have them on the bridge and uh, you can go along and put the light on it and see how that's changed from the last time you put the light on it. It'll show you. Uh, Yes, we could do a lot more monitoring existing bridges. Uh, we could do a lot more about measuring the chloride penetration to tell us how we're getting deterioration in bridges. We could actually come up with new ways of injecting materials along the pre-stressing strands, which would allow them to be less vulnerable to deterioration. But uh, these are technologies which we know exist and we could put in new bridges to give us uh, longer service lives and tell us what's going on. It's not uh, that easy to start off with an existing bridge and to assess its actual condition. It takes quite a bit of time and money and effort and uh, it probably uh, in some ways, it's better to try and concentrate on doing the replacement when it's right. obvious that the bridge needs replacement. Right. So with that being said, the bridges that are built today are better because? Uh, better materials, better uh, construction techniques, better knowledge, and uh, we have better methods of evaluating what's going on too. Okay. So are they made to handle you know much heavier loads uh, because obviously we're seeing not only uh, vehicles that are that are larger but certainly uh, traffics traffic more traffic on, on the traffic on volumes the, yeah volumes, right yeah well you know when that's one of the when we talk about bridges becoming obsolete 
they become obsolete because they have deteriorated or they become obsolete because they can no longer handle the traffic volumes that are being placed on that bridge. Uh, I mean, many of the bridges uh, it, it have inadequate shoulders on the bridge so that there's no place to push up, pull off. And if somebody wants to start uh, then putting bicycles on the same bridge, which we start to see in a number of cities, then you're restricting the traffic lanes. We like to have traffic lanes now that are 12 feet wide. But if you, uh, in necessity, quite often in construction zones, they'll cut them down to 10 feet or even 8 feet to get through. So we have limits on the sizes of vehicles. But, you know, the size of vehicles keeps on going bigger and bigger. This country has a love with SUVs and large trucks. And uh, that means that many of our uh, older bridges have inadequate lane widths for these trucks traveling at speeds of 60 and 70 miles an hour. So that also contributes to the need for replacement of bridges. It's the to try and keep up with what we're allowing uh, the public to drive. Well, I want to talk a little bit about yourself. Talk about now, uh, obviously you were uh, called to be at least voicing uh, an expert opinion about the bridge uh, at FIU. Talk about, uh, are there, there are governments that are, that are seeking your advice? Are there companies? You know, talk about the things that you uh, are continuing to be involved with. Well, when you get to be my age, you don't want to take on too many things. But sometimes you get asked to take on things. Uh, back in 1991, during the reconstruction of one of the floating bridges here in Washington State, uh, the bridge under reconstruction sank. Now, uh, floating bridges, of course, if you uh, are not careful in what you're doing, are just like a ship and it'll sink. And furthermore, floating bridges, which are relatively old, develop cracks and can uh, actually start to leak, which is also a problem. And, and our technology in floating bridges has advanced uh, considerably. Well, this failure in 1991, I sat on a, a governor's uh, commission for the state of Washington to investigate uh, what had gone wrong with that bridge. So I, uh, during the reconstruction, so in the course of that, I learned a lot more about floating bridges than I had before. I learned a lot more about how the Department of Transportation operated on those bridges, and I learned a lot more about the design and construction of those bridges. So more recently, yeah. I'll, go ahead. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come back to the floating bridges, but I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. So more recently, the, the state here in, of Washington decided to build a new floating bridge, which was to replace another existing floating bridge. And so the floating portion of the bridge is over two miles in length. And uh, they started to build the pontoons that support the actual roadway out in Aberdeen, which is on the coast. They then were going to take these pontoons and pull them by, uh, by tugboat 
around the coast of Washington, in through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and uh, up into Puget Sound, and then bring them up through the locks in Seattle into the fresh water of Lake Washington. And uh, the they were building these pontoons in sequence. So there was to be about uh, some 20 pontoons or more built in Aberdeen. Now, these pontoons, for example, are 360 feet uh, long, about 80 feet wide, and maybe up to 70 feet deep. And uh, they are built of concrete, which might have walls 12 inches thick, typically, and in between there's a series of cells. You can uh, sort of equate it to the egg crate, which you get your eggs at in the store. That's what the interior of the pontoon looks like. And they were pre-stressing these pontoons so they would uh, not uh, crack. Uh, But during the pre-stressing operation, they managed to start cracking the ends of the pontoons. That's even before they even tried to put them in the water. So I was asked to come in and try and help them solve why were they causing this cracking, which was what we had to do. So floating bridges, obviously uh, Seattle uh, poses a, a big the concern, the growing nature of the, of the city, uh, particularly in the West Seattle and, and and beyond. Talk about the challenge there as uh, population increases and what the needs were for for bridges there. Yeah, there's a a number of needs for bridges. We've uh, had the West Seattle high-rise bridge, which I also was involved in the design of or the selection of the design of floor. And then we had the West Seattle low-rise bridge, which is a swing bridge which uh, actually was a very interesting design that they came up with after evaluating swing bridges. Um, and, you know, most of the bridges that across the Chicago River are bascule bridges. That is, there are two uh, leaves to the bridge which go up to allow the shipping to go underneath it. But the reevaluations of modern technology for the West Seattle site told them that they should use a swing bridge, which means that it's simply uh, like they used to be the old crossings for the the, uh, canals in England, Uh where you had just an arm on the bridge that then swings sideways to let the barges come through and open the uh, locks or whatever it is. And uh, that was used in the West Seattle Bridge because they could now build in place big rotating cylinders, because that was the sort of thing that they actually had developed for uh, naval armaments on, uh, you know, battleships and so on. So anyway, there's a a number of advances which can take place in bridge designs. There's a number of things that are problems with the maintenance of the bridges in Seattle. And there are other bridges in Seattle which are really starting to deteriorate and needing replacement. There's a viaduct that uh, goes across the city or the front of the viaduct and it's vulnerable to earthquakes, such as the one that caused the viaduct collapses down in San Francisco, and they're replacing that with a tunnel. Well, you know, when you think of these things, uh, if you talk about a tunnel, the cost of a tunnel is, 
approximately twice or more times the cost of an above grade structure. Uh So, you know, coming up with solutions like this is a good one. It moves traffic around the city and so on faster. It improves the aesthetics, but it costs a lot more. Well, so talk a little bit about the future. You've been around uh, a number of years. You've seen a lot of changes. Uh, We started off just talking about the potential crisis. Um, How do you see this being solved, particularly in this country? Well, I think we need to put our heads around what exactly are we trying to do with having people moving along highways and so on. I mean... Uh, the whole idea of a road is to transport uh, something from here to there. Well, now, how are we going to do this transporting of something from here to there? If it's people, they wanted to go some way. But before long, will we have jet suits which you can fly on and therefore we do not need to have surface roads in the same way? Uh, A lot of the stuff we move now by delivery truck. Uh, Maybe we should better move it by drones. Uh, I think we might find out that we are going to be using the air in quite a different way than we have uh, used it in the past. And uh, I don't know that I would like to think about the highway being in the air with uh, a droning traffic at uh, four or five different levels. But then maybe we could get rid of the noise of the droning traffic because we can buy, build hybrid and electric engines, which makes things quite different. So, you know, the, the question is, do we really need to maintain the same systems as we do now? Or can we move people uh, and goods in more creative ways than we've been doing? And certainly, you know, the whole uh, world has been Uh, modified by the technology changes that we're doing. And certainly we can expect drone deliveries before too long. So I think that we need to be evaluating how we spend our resources in making actual, some of our roads more uh, better, but we also need to think more about how we can interface those with other types of technology that are new to us. Well, Professor Neil Hawkins has been our guest. He's a uh, uh, professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, and an expert um, in uh, uh, pre-stressed concrete and pre-stressed concrete structures subject to uh, static and dynamic loadings. Uh, it's, this has been a, a fascinating program. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck to you down the road. Thank you, Mark. Uh, This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corpse of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.